Tuesday night, we are having a interest meeting for people that, that might be interested in being involved in help, helping launch and facilitate a marriage ministry. Uh, many of you probably at some point in your life have really benefited from some people in your life who could mentor you and some opportunities you had in marriage ministry. And it's made a significant difference in your life and in the trajectory of your marriage. And if that's you, we would love to have you get involved. And uh, we, we don't want just seasoned couples. We also want some younger couples as well. And so um, we would love, I would just love to have you come on out. And if you're interested in that, um, what I'd like you to do is just write that on a blue card, drop it in the black giving box in the back, and you'll get an email uh, on Monday just giving you the details. That's going to be here Tuesday evening. And uh, let's just dive in. Before we dive into the topic, let's just pray and just commit this time to the Lord. Let's remember um, again this week our brothers and sisters suffering um, in Afghanistan and in Haiti. And just acknowledge all the craziness in the world and give it to God. So, Lord, we just come before you. And we acknowledge that uh, life sometimes is so confusing. And um, there's so many things that are heartbreaking. And so as we kind of recenter on the gospel and what the whole story is about, uh, we just ask that, uh, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. Lord, we remember our, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and continue to ask you just to, to spare their lives, Lord, to give them strength, to give them courage. Um, Lord, just to uh, that you would change hearts and um, appear in dreams and visions to Taliban and, and just change hearts and lives over there, Lord. I pray for those in Haiti as well that are still suffering. And uh, now as this new hurricane uh, looks like it's going to be hitting the Gulf Coast, we ask your mercy. And uh, and we just pray as, as we see culture and society in such chaos, Lord, and as we think about um, and wonder, perhaps you're returning soon, I pray that you would just give us the focus and the hope to stay on mission of what you've called us to do in this time, in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, in two weeks, we are launching into a new verse-by-verse series in the book of John. And today, we're moving towards the end of a short series called Family, Friends, and Enemies. And as we've been saying, we all know that family can be either friends or enemies sometimes, right? It can be one or all. And family is actually a challenging topic to teach on because it's just so complicated, isn't it? The terms father or mother or son or daughter or brother are are not emotionally neutral terms. They usually carry a lot of baggage with them, sometimes good baggage, sometimes bad baggage, but they they carry some baggage along with them. And the truth is, uh, when it comes to the, the relationships with those that are closest to us, and especially our immediate family, um, they were actually never created to be emotionally neutral terms. They were never, these relationships were never created to be neutral and just sort of, uh, you know, emotionally neutral. They were always meant to carry a great deal of emotion with them. And because of that, I think one of the, uh, the most destructive lies that we can tell ourselves when it comes to family is this. I just don't care anymore. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but I know in a, in a you know, room this size and those joining us online, um, there's probably a lot of you that you have a relationship with someone close to you in your life where you at some point thought, felt, said that I just don't care anymore. 
And here's the, here's, here's the issue with that, is you do. You do. You may not want to. They may not deserve for you to. You may think you don't have a lot of emotions wrapped up in that relationship, but chances are you do. Why? Because God designed you to care. Because God placed you in the context of relationships that were never designed to be emotionally neutral. That's why it hurts so bad. And as you look at relationships, you know, with those closest to you, while, while all relationships are important, um, I, I've noticed that it seems like the relationship with our fathers is actually perhaps most critical to your future health. Some of you would acknowledge that, right? And sorry, moms, I'm not giving you the short end of the stick. This is just something I've observed, right? That relationship is oftentimes the most difficult. It's oftentimes the one that most tempts you to say just, you know, he's a jerk. He was never there. I just don't care anymore. I'm moving on. Forget the bump. And some of you identify with that kind of experience when it comes to your father or, or perhaps another relationship in your life, right? And here's the thing. You can say that and move on, but the problem with close family relationships is that it almost always pulls you back later in life. So you may be in, you know, your late teens, early 20s, kind of just, you know, getting started with career, college, or, or moving into, you know, your first job, and you may be thinking, I, I just left that behind, but at some point, it's going to pull you back. It's kind of like uh, I, I used to, we used to set up this uh, pool in our backyard, you know, a redneck pool, the blue round one. I, I called it my redneck pool with a million dollar view because we had this amazing view where it sat of, of, of the monument, um, but it was a ghetto redneck pool. And I discovered, I saw this thing, you know, you have SkyMall in the airplanes when you fly, the magazine, and I saw this thing in SkyMall, and I'm like, that's genius because I always wanted one of those endless pools, but there's a lot of money, right? You know, those endless pools where you just, you, you can swim and they have like, they create the, the current and you can just kind of swim in laps without ever stopping. I thought that would be awesome. So I see this thing in Sky Mall and it's actually, uh, I, I, don't, I can't remember what it was called, but I'm going to call it a, a redneck endless pool. Because basically what it was is a bungee cord that you attach to yourself and just hook it over the side of your redneck pool. And so I came home from that trip, and I made one. I got a bungee cord, and I got a little, you know, belt, and I wrapped it around my waist, and um, I got in that pool. And it was great. It actually worked really well. But, but here's the thing. And some of you are like, I'm doing that. I'm going home, and I'm doing that because I have a redneck pool. Anyway, <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good of a swimmer you are. You could be Michael Phelps, right? You could be Michael Phelps, but you're never going to get anywhere, are you? It's always going to suck you back in. And you see the relationships that are closest to you, when you say, I don't care, and you move on, they almost always pull you back in emotionally. It's like there's a giant bungee cord attached to you. And later in life, you... you there's all this baggage and all these emotions that come up, and you're like, where did that come from? And your cat and dog uh, are scared of you when you walk by, you know? 
in your kids. I'm like, what's wrong with dad? And there's just all, the, all this emotion in this because um, you told yourself a lie and you thought you moved on. But inside, you really didn't. And, you know, in every child, and that includes you and me, us bigger kids, right? There's something in us that longs for the approval of our parents, especially our fathers, right? And that longing actually never goes away. It oftentimes gets buried. Um, many times for, for young women, it gets transferred to other men or, you know, a spouse or a friend or, or others. But there's actually something very powerful within us that longs for the approval of our father. There's something special about the approval of our father. And some guys actually spend decades in a profession that they don't even like just to earn the approval of their father because what was communicated to them growing up is that you're going to be this. In fact, ladies, I bet if your father, um, if you had a good father and he complimented you as you were growing up, I bet it stuck with you, didn't it? I still remember my, my little girl, two years old, and she'd come in with a little princess dress and go, look, daddy. You know, she's, she's approaching tween years, and she's still doing that. There's something in the heart of humankind that longs for the approval of their parents. And if you have a, a relationship, just a strong dislike or a hatred towards your father, you know what? It's not because you don't care. It's because he really matters to you. I've heard it said that the opposite of love isn't hate. It's actually apathy. I find it very interesting and very telling that Jesus actually invites us and calls us to address our God as our heavenly father. Our only perfect father. I think there's also the desire in the heart of every parent to be approved of by his or her children, right? To be a hero. To hear things like, when I grow up, I, I, I want to be just like you. And I think it, there's also an insecurity in the heart of every parent, right, that grows. And here's the thing. Buried beneath the hurt and the disappointment and the distance and the silence in our relationships, there's just this desire for connection, and it lasts a lifetime. And so today I, I want to talk to those of you in the room particularly who have decided to follow Jesus and who may have relationships from your dad or your mom or your sister or your brother, or, um, extended family that are estranged. And at some point, you said, I just don't care. And I, what I want to encourage you to do is, is begin to or perhaps um, continue taking steps to reconcile with those people in your lives. And I know it's not all on you, right? But sometimes you just have to take the steps that you can do. And ultimately, I think taking steps towards reconciliation is actually what is the best bet for your wholeness and your health. And also, and this is, I think, the most important reason, is because reconciliation is also a really big deal to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was preaching, 
his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said something that to his audience in the first century in, uh, in Israel would have been just shocking. He's teaching, he says, hey, if you are actually offering your gift, your sacrifice at the very altar, this is the highest, holiest place in their faith, if you're actually all the way up to the, to the altar and you're getting ready to offer your sacrifice, and then remember that your brother or sister has something toward you, you know, that thing, that thing that nobody likes to bring up at family dinners or everybody tries to ignore or get past, right? That tension, that thing. Here's what he says. You leave your gift there before the altar and go. At which point in the sermon, everybody would have gone, you don't leave your gift on the altar. It's like you're ignoring God. It's like you just walked away from God. And Jesus goes, no, no, here's what you have to understand about the heart of your father. He has such a heart for, for your relationship and the way you treat your brother or sister in Christ or your family member. That this is how big of a deal it is. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Go make it right. This is how important reconciliation is to Jesus. It's a really big deal. And I think as we get to the scripture we're going to look at here today in 2 Corinthians, and you can start turning over there if you want to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think perhaps that Paul has this statement in mind as he later writes a letter to the church in Corinth that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to jump kind of right in in, in the middle of a passage and, and give you right up front the bottom line of, of why it is, what should be the primary motivating factor for us when it comes to uh, fulfilling this thing that Jesus said, which is reconciling with each other. And here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us. His love compels us. His love for us. The love that Jesus Christ has for us, the love that Jesus Christ showed us when he died for us on the cross, the love of our Heavenly Father towards us who gave his only Son, the love of Christ, Christ's love compels us. And when you see this word compels us, it really is this idea of it leaves us no choice. It, it takes away some options. We like to keep our options open, don't we? That's just human nature. And, and, and there's something about the love of Christ that actually compels or constrains us. It limits our options. It hems us in. I remember uh, going camping in the winter. You, anybody remember mummy bags? Yeah, you'd like go camping. It was so freezing cold out, and you'd get in that mummy bag and just like pull that zip cord up to like three inches of your face or showing. Normally because you heard noises outside that sounded like a bear. Because that little bit of fabric's going to, that's going to save you, isn't it? But it, it, was, it was warm, right? There was, there was something warm about it, but it was constraining, wasn't it? You, you weren't getting out of that thing unless you opened it. And this is kind of the idea. It constrains us. It limits the options. When we realize how much Jesus Christ loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of all the times we've rebelled against him, when we come to grips with that, when we realize that he has relentlessly pursued us, 
in spite of the fact that maybe even you weren't even interested in him. You weren't running towards him. He ran towards you. He tracked you down. He found you where you were. When you realize that kind of love, it says it compels us, it constrains us. That's the primary motivation. And when it comes to living in obedience to him, whether it's reconciliation or any other thing that he calls us to do, the reason, the primary motivating factor is his love for us. It's the gospel. It's what he's done for us. His love constrains us. He goes on. He says this, because we are convinced that one died for all, that's Jesus, and therefore all died. That's a little confusing. You're like, what? I don't get that. Well, he explains it here right in the next verse. He goes on. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So when he's talking about therefore all die, what what is he talking about? Um, That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, there's something when, when we recognize the love of Jesus, when we embrace the love of Jesus for us, it compels us to live in a way where we actually die to ourselves. And what does that mean? It means we die to the things in ourselves. We put behind the things in ourselves that are not of him, that are displeasing to him, that break the heart of God. The selfish tendencies, that's a constant process, And we live for him. We live for him. And so when we say, but I I don't want to reconcile with so-and-so. I mean, they, they don't deserve it. You know what? You're probably right. But that's not why we do it. Why do we do it? It's because of what he did for you. It's because he loved you first. He died for us, so we live for him. And what do we do? Whatever he calls us to do. See, that's the message of the cross. Is that because we've embraced the gospel and, and we're overwhelmed by the great love that he has for us and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he actually gives us the ability now on a daily basis to begin walking out that love and walking out the calling he has. Even when we bump up against things, we're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to reach out to that bum. I don't want to be kind in this situation. I want to be selfish in this situation. I don't want to say I'm sorry first. He needs to say he's sorry first. Remember our our talk last week, own your own slice of the pie, right? Own your own junk. Own it. There's, There's a slice there. You own some of this, don't you? But there's still this thing in us that's like, yeah, but because their, their slice is so much more than mine, I'm not going first. I'm not taking the first step. I'm not going to be the one that says I'm sorry. They got to do that. That's them. And Paul would say, hey, it's Christ's love, his love for us that compels us. Doesn't leave us any option. He goes on. So from now on, Now, since our eyes have been open to the amazing truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly 
point of view. In other words, we see people in a whole different way now. No longer do I see you as someone that I can use to get my own, um, so that I can get what I want out of the relationship, so that I can get what I want, so I can feel affirmed, so I can feel, you know, um, fulfilled in you, so you can boost my ego. No, we look at these relationships completely different. I don't look at them so I can squeeze what I want, my happiness out of you and what you can do for me. And if, if I'm angry at you, well, I'm more powerful than you, so I use you. Remember the first week of the series where, where he talks about this revolutionary concept in the first century of how family was done. It's called mutual submission, right? Submit to one another out of what? Out of reverence for Christ, the same idea, Ephesians. That when it comes to relationships, there's a for each other thing that should be characteristic of Christian relationships, of Christian families. That I put the other person first, just like Christ put me first. And so he says, uh, we don't regard anyone from the worldly point of view anymore. In a Roman first century culture, you know, where women were t- treated like property, um, children were treated like property, women just a little bit better, treated harshly. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how you treat your family. That's not how a Christian family operates. It's not how relationships operate. We are all on an equal plane. In Christ, there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male, nor female. I'm not that those things don't exist, but it's on an equal platform before the cross that we all stand on an equal place. And so he goes on, he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. See, Messiah, when, when a Jewish person in the first century was to think about Messiah, their first idea in their minds is he's going to be the one that comes and squashes the enemy, that drives out Rome, and that brings us back Israel as a superpower status in the world. And it's going to be wonderful. And it's going to be really good for me. And Christ instead came as a humble servant. He came, he bled. He died. He gave his life. And paradoxically, in the midst of that, he conquered all the powers of sin and hell and the enemy and the powers of Satan through the cross, the great paradox. And he says, we, even, we, we, we thought of Jesus this way in this whole power structure thing, and he came and he washed our feet And he gave his life for us. That's why Paul in Philippians will say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider one another as more important than yourself. That's what Jesus did for you. And now we see it all different. We saw it before that the Messiah was going to come and put us back to the superpower, and then we were going to take vengeance on all these enemies. But instead, he sent us out as missionaries to all these enemies to spread the love and the message of Jesus to all these enemies. And there will be a day of judgment when Jesus returns. 
when all things are made right and where everyone will give an account of their deeds. But now, in this day and age, we have a different message. And that message is you can know Jesus. You can be forgiven. You can experience his grace. You can escape the wrath that is to come. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This changes everything in the way we relate to God. And it changes everything in the way we relate to others. It's a brand new day. We are a new creation. Everything's different now. This is where the idea of restoration of the way God originally intended creation to be in the garden when we would walk with God in perfect unity and perfect unity with each other, with no sin, no shame that separated us. And that was all broken at the fall. And now we get a a deposit or a down payment, Paul will call it, of, of the future resurrection when everything will be restored. And we get to taste a little bit of that in our relationship with God and our relationship with others now as God repairs what is broken and empowers us by his Holy Spirit. And we commune with God. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We've been reconciled. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation, if you don't know what that is or if it's a big confusing word, it's the process of bringing two things into right relationship with each other, making two things compatible. Um, how many of you do a little accounting and you reconcile your checkbook to your bank statement? Anybody? A few of you. The rest of you are like, no, nah, it's all digital now. We don't worry about it, right? The rest of you are like, as long as there's a little money in there, I'm fine, right? It's all fine as long as you don't write a bad check. Well, actually, you need a budget. We'll do Dave Ramsey another time. But anyway, I, I had a... a I worked with someone here at the church years ago, and there was this one thing, and it was not a lot of money, but it was like we, we have a couple different databases, right, and QuickBooks and all this. It was like not very much. It was just a few dollars, if I remember right, but it was driving us crazy because we couldn't figure out why these two things aren't reconciling and matching up. And, and it was like, you know, it was keeping her awake at night. Until finally it was like the light bulb went on and we found this little one little thing, right? It's like, all right, now everything is right. It's, it's reconciled. And this is the idea. There was conflict between God and us. But then not, not us. We didn't run towards God first. He ran towards us first. And he went to work to resolve the conflict. He's the one who initiated He's the one who just said, I will be the one to go against actually the offender and reconcile. We were the offenders. Humanity were the offenders. We were the ones who sinned against God. And he said, I, I'm not going to wait for you to decide I'm going to come back and make things right. I'm going to send Jesus on the cross. I'm going to move first. I'm going to reconcile. It's the heart of the gospel. 
It's all about reconciliation. It's about the fact that he initiated. He wasn't the one in the wrong. We own the pie, like the pie, right? He didn't have a slice of that pie. And yet, he decided to not let that fact that we didn't even want to be reconciled get in the way of him moving to reconcile us. Through Christ, God removed every obstacle that is in the way between your and my reconciling with himself. You know what? Except for one thing, your free will. Because you still have to choose to turn towards him and to embrace the work that he did for you. And it says in the scripture, he even gives you the faith to do that. But you got to say yes. He's removed the obstacles. See, the gospel, it's all about reconciliation. He goes on. He says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That both in our relationships with others and in the calling and in calling others to reconcile with God himself, um, he's given us this ministry. He's given us this calling. He sent us out on the mission of reconciliation. The gospel, at the heart of the gospel, it's about reconciliation. In fact, I want to pop over to a different verse in uh, Colossians. We preached through the book of Colossians a few, well, it's been quite a few years ago now. It's amazing how time flies. Colossians 1 and verse um, 19 and 20, it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself, to the Father heart of God, all things, to, to the Godhead. He's reconciling all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I, I used to, when I teach this uh, scripture, and I learned this at a missions training school uh, years ago, and it really just popped out at me. I remember they, they draw this circle. So everybody imagine a big circle, right? That circle represents all things. Let me ask you a question. What lies outside of that circle? Interesting. And at the heart of this idea in the gospel is that creation itself, like Paul says in Romans, it, it groans and waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for when everything will be restored and made, made new. That God is in the process of reconciling. And he's in the process of reconciling us to him initially as we give our lives to him and we are saved. But it doesn't stop there. He's in the process of bringing beauty out of ashes, of bringing healing out of brokenness, of mending the relationships in our life, of taking the first step, of initiating the change, of doing something awesome in our lives, of bringing peace where there isn't peace. That's at the heart of the gospel. That's at the heart of what it's all about. And so when it says it's, it's given us the ministry of reconciliation, this means our, our message to broken relationships is, hey, God can bring peace in that. Hey, God can re reconcile that. Hey, God, I know that's so broken, but God can bring healing to that. Hey, Jesus can make you new. I know what your life looks like right now. I know how broken that relationship looks right now. 
I know how broken that trust is right now, but God can restore and he can heal and he can bring life and he can bring hope to you and he can bring peace to your heart. That's the message. That's, that's the call that we're to be given. You know, our part, part of our mission in life, our mission is as we go throughout life to be people that spread the message of, hey, you can be reconciled to God. Hey, God can move in your situation. That's, we're, we're his hands and feet in this world. You're called to bring that hope into the life of people who don't have that hope, whose lives are broken. It goes on in verse 19 and says this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And if you're, you, you grew up a Christian, we, we love this. We, we love the gospel, the message of the gospel when it comes to what Jesus Christ did for us personally. This, not counting people's sins against them. He was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Aren't you glad? No, seriously. See, I think sometimes if you grew up in church, you've, you've been you know, maybe saved for so long, you don't remember what God saved you from. You've lost the impact on, the soul, on your soul that God actually saved you from an eternity separated from him. You've lost the joy of your salvation. It got ho-hum at some point. It's never intended to be that way. And it's good to wake ourselves up and remind ourselves that he didn't hold your sins against you. He saved you. He sees eternity, past, present. He knew some of the things you would do after he saved you. Because you didn't clean up right away, did you? You weren't all squeaky clean when he saved you. You blew it. You still blew it sometimes, don't you? He didn't hold it against you. He saved you. He offered you life and reconciliation. But here, here, here's where this gets tricky, guys. Not counting people's sins against them. We like this, right? But then it says this. Um, and let me just say, not counting people's sins against them doesn't mean pretending there were no sins. That's kind of a popular idea in our culture today. It means, no, he didn't let that stop him from moving towards you in reconciliation. He didn't let our sins stop him from wanting relationship with us. He didn't let that be the barrier. Like we started the series saying, grace and truth, grace and truth, right? He was always, Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. He would say, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So it's not that we ignore or pretend there were no sins. It's that he didn't let that be the obstacle towards him moving in relationship with us. And this is where the rubber meets the road for you and me, guys, because he says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
And here's where this gets challenging. Because we're supposed to carry this incredible message to the world of you can be reconciled to God in spite of your sins. You can be reconciled. And I think most of us don't have too much of a problem, although sometimes we're scared to share that or we don't always know how to share that with people. But we acknowledge that, right? Even in people that have hurt us. Yeah, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. But here's what we often do. You can't be reconciled to me. God may not count your sins against you, but I sure do. Somebody say, ouch. And for so many of us, that is the thing that that stops us from moving into reconciling, to moving in the direction of relationship and forgiveness of those that have hurt and offended us. And I know in a room like this, you're like, there's just so many objections. There's so many stories. And you're like, you just don't understand my circumstance. If you told it to me, I'd probably be like, yeah, yeah, wow. I know that. There's so many disagreements. There's so many unresolved things from the past. And let me just say um, that, that God, did, did he reconcile you or offer to reconcile to you before or after you, you began the process of ridding yourself of sins and habits and offensive attitudes. He offered and he moved in your direction first. And so, so many times what we use when we say, ah, I'm not going to move in that person's direction to reconcile them. I'm not going to say I'm sorry first. They've hurt me so bad. I just don't even want anything to do with them. I just don't care. I'm moving on. What we're really saying is God may forgive you, but I don't. Guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, he's committed to you the message of reconciliation. And, you know, sometimes the the things stopping you as you think, man, if I move towards this person in my life, maybe a family member and me and my sister, we just can't stand dad or mom or whatever. They did this thing, right? That it, you think if I move towards them, it will be like I'm condoning their behavior because their behavior is lousy. It's like I am supporting what they're doing, you know, He went and married, and I won't tell you what mom calls her. Uh, We're in church. She walked away. He was never there for me. My brother is such a jerk. Do you know what Jesus was frequently accused of? Being a sinner because he moved towards sinners with the goal of reconciling them to God and to himself. So if you get accused of condoning someone's behavior when you know you're not, but you're just moving towards them in relationship, you're in good company. You know, forgiveness, part of forgiveness means you let go of that bitterness. You let go of that constantly holding someone's sin over their head. You let go of it. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not for a second saying that you should get back into a truly abusive situation or you should give up on the wise boundaries that you you spent time with your counselor helping helping you work on wise boundaries because I know there's those situations. You know, be faithful, be wise. It means this, I can love you and I can move towards relationship within, you know, safe boundaries. I can forgive you. I can be kind. I can communicate that I'm for you. In spite of the fact that you haven't said you're sorry in this area, you haven't acknowledged that you're wrong, you haven't apologized for how bad you hurt me, I can still begin to take steps that are wise and biblical and that God calls me to, to let you know I want to reconcile with you. I want to invite Zach to come back up. As we close here today, I just want to ask you, who came to mind while I've been speaking? Maybe God wants to move in that relationship. Maybe obedience is sending a text message or dropping a note in the mail with a couple pictures of your kids. I don't know. What is God calling you to do? Is there a step, a simple step you can take to begin to repair a relationship that's been broken? Maybe it's just reaching out and that person that has hurt and disappointed you so badly, just letting them know you're thinking about them, you care about them. God will show you what to do. But what I know you need to do is stop telling yourself, I just don't care anymore. Because that's not the road to freedom. And I think probably if you're feeling like a bunch of tension and anxiety in your heart right now, it's probably because there's a place where God actually wants to move. And he wants to work in that place. And if you're like, I know, I just don't want to. I know. But Christ's love compels us. Compels us. Not for them. Not even for you. Although it will probably be healing for you. It's for Jesus. It's for him. Because he moved towards you in spite of you. And so as we close here, I'm just going to invite you to stand up. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And as I've been speaking, we're going to close in a song here in a minute. If that's you, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. If, If you know, as I've been speaking, man, there's someone in my life I need to begin to take some steps towards. I want to invite you to commit to do that right now just by slipping your hand up for a moment. Would you do that? Would you do that? Awesome. Amen. And as we close, I want to share the one more verse, the next verse with you. And Paul closes it this way. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Although God hit, uh, were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled 
to God. And if you're in the room or you're joining us online here and you've never crossed the line of faith, you've never said yes to what Jesus did when he initiated, when he came to this planet, when he lived, when he died for you, I want to give you the opportunity to respond right now. Today can be your day. Today can be the moment when you choose to say yes to God. Because through, through Jesus dying and rising again, he removed the obstacles that stood in the way of you having a relationship with him. But you have to embrace what he did. You can say yes today. You can put your trust in him. And I just want to invite you. I'm going to close in a prayer. And if this is you, I want to invite you wherever you're at to repeat this after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I can't make it to God on my own. And so I give up on all the, the ways I was trying in and of myself to make it to you. And I embrace the free gift you're giving me. I accept your forgiveness. I believe you're the son of God, that you died and rose again. Welcome me into your family. I want to live my life for you.